If you have a Bible, can I encourage you to turn in it to Judges chapter 8? And if you want to use the Bible in front of you to kind of follow along, if you want to turn to page 207, and we'll be on that a little bit, mostly on 208, just kind of the way the page break is there for uh, Judges 8. 85 years ago yesterday, Germany, Great Britain, France, and Italy reached a settlement known as the Munich Agreement. The agreement, made without any representatives from Czechoslovakia, allowed Germany to annex part of western Czechoslovakia where there was an estimated 3 million ethnic Germans. The agreement was put in place because it was supposed to secure a guarantee of no further German aggression in Europe. Neville Chamberlain, the British Prime Minister, when he returned home to London, received an enormous welcome, a great jubilant welcome. See, everyone understood, everyone assumed in that moment that his diplomatic efforts meant the threat of war had passed. And as he stood talking both to the media and the public, holding in his hand the agreement signed by Adolf, Adolf Hitler, he said, and I quote, Peace with honor. I believe it is peace for our time. Let me state two really obvious things. Peace is really good. Two, there's a whole lot more to the story than that. It did not take very long for that to come undone. Just six months later, in March of 1939, Hitler released his army and took over all of Czechoslovakia. And then in September of 1939, he invaded Poland, and we had World War II. You know, things can seem good and all of a sudden unravel and be anything but good. That can happen in a marriage. That can happen in a church. That can happen in a country. That can happen in our own personal lives. And to a measure, Judges really is a picture of that. I mean, the very beginning of Judges, the book really looked good. I mean, God had moved the people into the promised land, and that began to unravel, and it wasn't good. And then every time God moved, kind of fixed things, redeemed things, it looked good again. It just kept unraveling and unraveled and unraveled. Now, most of the time in the book of Judges, we're, we're simply told that things unraveled that things went bad, that we're simply told that. But in Judges 8, we're actually given, through the life of Gideon, three pictures, sort of three things that explain, maybe you could say the causes of why does a life unravel, sort of three pictures of what contributes to that happening. So this morning, as we walk through Judges 8, we're going to see those three pictures, and I want us to look at them and say, what causes a life to unravel? And at the same time, I think, though, I want to be asking the question, we need to ask the question, what needs to be going on in my life so I don't unravel? Because the chance is, folks, all of us are very capable of unraveling. So what does it look like? What causes it? And how do we not go there? Picture number one, what causes a life to unravel? What contributes to it? Well, when we stop sharing God's story. Now, Judges 7 ended with Gideon and Israel winning over Midian, basically pushing the Midianites back home. 
Perhaps we should say it more accurately. It would be to say that God saved Israel from Midian according to what God said he would do in Judges chapter 7 and verse 2. But interestingly, even though they, Gideon was on its leaving the country, they were bailing. Chapter 8 does not bring with a cel- begin with a celebration. It begins with an internal conflict. Chapter 8, verse 1 says this, Then the men of Ephraim said to him, referring to Gideon, What is it that you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. Now, as a tribe, Ephraim seemed to have a little bit of a reputation of maybe having a pre-Madonna complex. Okay, Joshua, the book, the guy that wrote the, the book is named after, the guy that brought them into the promised land, he was of the tribe of Ephraim. And the actual tabernacle that had been set, designed, and built by Moses was literally in the region of Ephraim. So they kind of were a little high on their horse. So this conflict in part maybe because they had a little bit of pride. They were like, hey, you need us if you're going to do anything. Verses 2 and 3, what happens next? And he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abazir? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Orb, and Zeba. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. Now, here's the thing. Gideon's response at this point is not necessarily a bad response. I mean, he de-escalated a fairly significant conflict, and there is value in doing that. Okay, providing a gentle answer turns away wrath. Uh, Proverbs chapter 15, 1 tells us about the wisdom behind that. So we could say there's a sense in which Gideon did something good, but not only should we notice what Gideon said, we also need to notice what he didn't say. See, Gideon didn't answer their question. He didn't explain to them why he didn't call them, which meant he missed a great opportunity where he could have said, hey, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you what God did. Let me tell you how God worked and moved. Now, folks, there's a subtleness to this brief account. There's there's not a whole lot there. But here's the thing. God had been the one that brought the victory. And yet, Gideon reduced it down to what he did and what Ephraim did. God's not in the picture. And we already know going through the book of Judges, based on what Judges 3.7 says, 3.12 says, 4.1 says, 6.1 says, the people of Israel have a knack for forgetting God, for kind of thinking he's not a part of the story of life. Which means when you forget God, you are excluding God And the role that he critically plays. Folks, you and I need to remember the words of Romans chapter 11 and verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul is declaring there, the word of God is declaring how essential God is to life. He's the creator of life. He's the sustainer of life. He is the point of life. Life only works, only makes sense if there is God and God is involved in it. If you and I stop sharing about God, stop thinking about God, stop sharing about God's part in the story, we go from being... uh, 
I don't know that you ever say someone's raveled, but grammatically it doesn't. But, you know, being put together to unravel. How do you get there? Because you stop sharing about God's part in the story. Folks, things will not hold together without God. We need to see that. We need to get that. Now, how do we stop ourselves from going there? Israel certainly went there a lot of times. Gideon seems to be going there. He's a hero of the faith. How do we not go there? Well, let me suggest some things. I wonder, folks, if things like the habit of a daily time of prayer where we simply stop ourselves and give thanks to God, we express gratitude to God for what he's given us. Kind of reminding ourselves, you know what? My ability to breathe is somewhat dependent upon what he has done in my life in terms of making it so I can transfer oxygen and receive oxygen and give out carbon dioxide. Do I realize, am I grateful to him? Folks, I would suggest to you, weekly worship, gathering like this, coming together to be reminded of what God has done, maybe being in a group with other followers of Christ, studying God's word together. Maybe that's a habit I need in my life to be reminded of what God has done for me. Maybe another thing I need to do to keep God straight and center in my life so that I don't stop sharing about God and his story is I simply take time to actually share God's story. Folks, I, I, yeah, I'd love to tell you I'm going to finish five minutes early and all of that, but I probably won't, but you can take five minutes this morning before you leave here. Turn to somebody. Maybe each of you can take two and a half minutes. You can time it if that helps. And just simply share, how have you seen God's hand this last week? Or how do you need to see God's hand this next week? We need that to keep us from unraveling. Picture number two, what else causes unraveling? Well, it seems to start when we stop sharing about God and God's story. Picture number two is when we are driven by personal issues and not God's mission. When we're driven by personal issue mission. Now, God's mission for Gideon was to save Israel from the hand of Midian. The hero in Judges 8, Midian, quite honestly, they are running. They are going back home. And although there is some measure of debate as to exactly where the Midianites kind of lived, they easily lived at least 100 plus miles away by foot. I mean, they were a long ways away. And they're running back home. Verse 4. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing now, a question we probably need to ask, if, Gideon, if Midian is running away and they're running to the east, okay, they're running away, and Gideon and his men are exhausted, why do they keep going? Why is Gideon continuing to go? That's a question I think we got to wrestle with. Verses 5 to 9. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zelmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? And Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. 
And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now, Succoth and Penuel would be Jewish cities on the east side of the Jordan, on the side Midian was towards, which meant every time over the last seven years, they... Midian came to town. They went through those two cities. Every time they left, they went through those two cities. There's a very good chance that they had lived for a long time with a heightened level of fear, and they probably didn't know all what God had just done, so they're very unsettled. They're unsure. They're not sure what to do. And that their response wasn't great. Let's be honest, it wasn't great. But here's the thing. Gideon had just been in a wrathful, tense situation with Ephraim, and he handled it. But all of a sudden here, he's the one that wants to express wrath. He's the one that's saying, you're in trouble when I come back to town. Why? What's driving this? Well, Gideon actually does go a long way. He probably travels much more than 100 to 150 miles, and he captures Zeba and Zalmunna. That's what verses 10 to 13 describe. And again, the question is, why did he go so far? They're running away. They don't want to come back. Why does he keep pursuing them? What's driving him? Verse 14 to 17. And he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and the elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the man of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna? I don't know if anyone's going to name their kids Zeba and Zalmunna, but free names if you're looking for some, I guess. Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city and he took the thorns of the wilderness and briars and with them, it says, taught the men of Sukkoth the lesson. He, he beat them. Okay, that's what he did. It wasn't, hey, let me tell you a little lesson. No, he, I don't know if you were a kid like I was. My parents had hanging up in in the kitchen. It said the Board of Education. It was that kind of a lesson if that helps you, okay? My parents are no longer living, so I can share what they used to. They only pointed to it. That was enough to scare the bejeebers out of me. The men of Succoth, not so smart. Verse 17, and he broke down the Tower of Penuel and killed them and killed the men of the city. Wow. Bear facts of the story. Gideon beat and killed fellow Jews. Let me be very clear. That was not a part of God's plan. Okay? Now, if these had been Canaanite cities that were supposed to be pushed out, that were to be removed, then doing those kinds of things would have been a part of God's plan. But God's plan was never for a Jew to kill a Jew. That was not God's plan. There's a kind of a sense, if you scratch these verses and kind of sniff, you get a little bit of an aroma of pride, of of personal desire. That's what's motivating Gideon. Gideon wanted to be noticed. He wanted everyone to say, oh, Gideon, you're so important. You're so significant. He's making this about himself. And folks, we need to understand, when we do that, it sounds like a prescription for unraveling. Verses 18 and 19. 
Then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, where are the men who killed you at Tabor? They're sorry, whom you killed at Tabor. And they answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. What was it that led Gideon to keep pursuing these kings? Well, by his own account, it was not because of God's mission. It was because of revenge. It was because he wanted something. Verses 20 and 21. Then he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. And the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on, their ne- on, the, were on the necks of their camels. Gideon was focused on his own thing. You know what? Jether's fear could have been a corrective for Gideon. When he saw the fear in the eyes of his son, sort of maybe saw him, so to speak, quaking in his, I guess you wouldn't say boots, but in his sandals, that could have taken Gideon back in his own mind to Judges chapter 6 when he's on the thresh, when he's on the, the wine press dealing with the wheat, trying to get some food, and the angel of the Lord shows up and he's afraid. Maybe the fear could have taken him to Judges 7 when God literally had Gideon go down to the camp of the Midianites and hear this dream. Gideon was afraid and God did these things. You see, God is the one that took Gideon from a man of fear to a faith-filled warrior. God did an amazing work in Gideon's life in chapter 6 and 7 to do that. But when we come to Judges 8, it's like the faith part's gone. The God part's gone. Gideon is acting like he became something because he became something, not because God worked and moved. And the truth is, Gideon's actions in verse 21, that's not about honoring God. That's about honoring himself. They're trash-talking him, and he's defending himself. Please do not miss the implication. Our lives can so easily unravel when we are motivated by our own personal issues and not God's mission. How do we not go there? How do we not make life about us and our agenda? How do we keep it on God's mission? Well, let me make three suggestions. First, I think we need to recognize that we need God when we're weak and when we're experiencing success. We always are dependent on God. There is no situation in life where you and I can operate on our own. We need to be about God and God's stuff. The Lord Jesus himself in John 15, 5 said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We need him. We need to recognize that. Second, I believe there is great value for you and me to do things in the service of God's kingdom that nobody notices, that nobody sees. 
Instead of thinking, I've got to be up front. I've got to be in the center. No, to just go and do other things. To remind myself, it's not about me. I'm just doing this because this advances God's mission. I'm going to serve because it's God's mission. Third, we probably need to ask our soul, what is driving us in something? Why are we trying to do this thing? So to speak, look in the mirror and ask the question, God, am I wanting to do this because it's about me or about your mission? See, our lives will unravel if we make it about our mission and not God's mission. Our lives will unravel when we stop telling God and God's story, when we stop that. And picture number three, our lives also will unravel when our words are disconnected from our actions. If you and I want to literally experience, kind of have things break down when our words are disconnected from our actions. The people of Israel, they are so grateful in a lot of ways to be delivered after seven years of oppression. And so they come up with an idea. They're like, hey, um, we like peace, so how do we continue peace? They want to know how. So verse 22, they say this. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. I mean, they're saying, Gideon, come, please rule over us. Take control. You did this for us. We need you. Gideon was used by God, but Gideon is the face of it. What is Gideon? How does he respond? Verse 23. Then Gideon said, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord, the Lord will rule over you. Now, Gideon's response is great. Okay, the Lord is the ruler. The Lord is the one that provided the victory. The Lord is the one that can guarantee the victory. It's not Gideon, it's God. Now, here's the thing. I really wish the story ended at this point, and it said, and they all lived happily ever after. Or it jumped down, skip verses 24 to 27, went to verse 28, and ended with, and the land had peace. I, I wish that's how the story ended. But that's not how the story ends. You see, Gideon's words said one message, but his actions had a very different message. See, what, what, what message did it have? Why are you saying that there's a disconnect between his words and his actions? Well, three things to consider. One is, one of the things Gideon did is he decided to inject himself into the religious life of Israel. Okay? Instead of going and following God, he sort of set up a competition. Verse 24 to 27. Then Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from the spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in earrings of his spoil, and the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and beside the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And notice this, and Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. In Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there. 
and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Gideon asked for gold, and he asked for a lot of gold. 1,700 shekels is probably a little more than in excess of 40 pounds of gold. So in today's figure, this is more than a million dollars of gold, like sitting on this cloak. And you're thinking, oh, great, they're going to make something to worship and honor God, right? They're gonna, it's going to be a gift to God. No. Gideon used it to make an ephod. Now, back when Moses and the people were wandering in the wilderness and God was giving them the plans for the tabernacle and all of that, God had Moses make an ephod. And the ephod was something that the high priest would wear to help people seek God's direction, to follow after God. Well, what is happening here? Gideon is making his own ephod. He's setting up a competition with God. And verse 27 describes how bad a decision that was. His action says God rules, which means God's the one whose direction I should follow, right? But they're going on their own way. Second disconnect between his words and his actions. He had a sizable harem. Verse 29 and 30. Now Jeroboam, the son of Joash, another name for Gideon, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring. Well, how did he have 70 sons? For he had many wives. Very simply, very quickly, ancient kings, how they would have power and dominance was they'd build a harem. I'm not going to rule over you, but I'm sure going to act like an ancient king. Third disconnect, third sign of disconnection. He names one of his sons with a very provocative, suggestive name. Verse 31, and his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. Now, I don't know how many wives he had in his harem, but obviously his harem wasn't enough, so then he had a concubine on the side. Scholars suggest that she probably wasn't even Jewish. She was probably a Canaanite, which is a whole other problem that Gideon's getting into. And he's not just like, this wasn't an accidental kind of a thing. He obviously had some kind of a relationship because he knew they were having a child together and he names the son and he names the son, my father is king. That's what Abimelech means. My father is king. There really seems to be a gap between Gideon's words and Gideon's deeds. And that gap seems to feed right into a fairly significant unraveling for the country and for his family. Verse 32 down to verse 35. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abrazites. And as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal bereath their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show the steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good he had done for Israel. A life can unravel when our words 
are disconnected from our actions. Hitler's words and his signature on the Munich Agreement on September the 30th, 1938, were hugely disconnected from his actions in March and September of 1939. Sadly, so were Gideon's. What makes a life unravel? When our words are disconnected from our actions. Now, how do we prevent that from happening in our own lives? How do we not do that? Because we're not perfect, this side of eternity. How do we not go there? Three suggestions for you. One is, we need to learn to pray a very honest prayer from Mark chapter 9, verse 24 where the father whose son is being excised of a demon said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Folks, you and I are very capable of saying true and right words, of believing them, and then then we struggle. God knows that. We need to be honest about that. God, I need your help. We shouldn't think, hey, I said it, I've got this figured out. No, we will struggle. Second suggestion, I think this is a time, a huge time where it points, we need to submit to God the way Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 call us to. We need to submit to him. The logic of the apostle Paul in those verses is very straightforward. When you and I consider God's goodness, God's mercy, what else could you and I do but give him our lives? Look what he has done. How could you not give him your life and realize the life you're giving him is not like, hey, God, I'm doing you a favor by showing up. No, we are giving him our lives knowing we must be transformed, knowing we have disconnects, and we're asking God to move in us, to align us, so that our words and our actions are in alignment. We need God to move in our lives to do that. And third, kind of similar to what we've already touched on back in picture two, we should pray for God's examination in our lives like David did in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. We can be blind, I believe, to our disconnect. We we maybe think we see it in other people's lives, and, and maybe we can see it in other people's lives, but we don't see it in our own lives. We need to ask God, to bring clarity, to bring conviction, to help us see where those disconnects are. You know, September 30th and October 1st, 1938 are very sad days in history. The Munich Agreement was signed on on September 30th, and on October 1st, Germany started taking possession of Czechoslovakia. It is also a very sad day when a life unravels. But I don't want to leave us there because I don't think that's the whole story of the Bible. Judges 8 kind of is there. But I want you to understand something about the God of Judges 8, and that is this. He specializes in taking unraveled lives and making them whole. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, it says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, how can God take an unraveled life and and make it whole? 
Well, he does it by putting us in Christ, which is a shorthand way of the Bible saying, for me to go to an unraveled life, to a new life, to a whole life, is I repent of my sins and I trust the Lord Jesus alone as my Savior. And when I do that, he puts me in Christ. And he takes my unraveled life and he gives me a whole life. And you say, how can God do that? How is that possible? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says this. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Through what God the Father and God the Son did on the cross, you and I can literally be made whole. Let me land the plane. I don't know if you feel your life is unraveled or if part of your life is unraveled. What I do know is this. The only one who can give you any sense of wholeness is Jesus. So I want to challenge you. I want to ask you this morning, if you feel like your whole life is unraveled, then maybe today is the day you need to repent of your sin and trust the Lord Jesus alone is your Savior because he alone can make you whole. You can't do it. Nobody else can. But Jesus can. And if there's parts of your life where you feel unraveled, can I ask you, can I urge you, can I beg you, bring that part of your life and say, God, I need Jesus here. It is really easy, folks, for us to unravel our lives. It's real easy to live in Judges 8, to be Judges 8. But God is inviting us this morning to Jesus, to the one who can make us whole, the one who can take old lives and say they're gone. Here is a new life. Here is the life in me. Please. Today is the day. We need Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, I am grateful to you for your kindness and your goodness, and I am grateful to you for the chance to be here. The chance to hear your word, to see it, and to realize how easy it is to unravel. But Lord, I pray we'd realize that you are the God who shares with us how a life can unravel to remind us that in Christ we can be made whole, we can be made new. I pray, Lord Jesus, we would turn to you today. We need you. In the very precious and powerful name of the Savior, we pray. Amen.